Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dogs and cats, children and babies, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be joining us from, it's Driveline Academy Podcast, the world's most dangerous podcast. I am your host, Devin Morgan, director of Baseball Driveline, founder of the Driveline Academy. Did I say all the things? I think I said all the things. Uh, with me, not in person, but in spirit, is my brother, my partner, my co-host, Driveline Academy Assistant Director, Driveline Academy International Man of Mystery, Jeremy Tectio, who'd probably be sitting like right over there or right over there. And uh, to that end, if you're joining us on an audiovisual platform, uh, like our good friends over at Spotify, uh, you will see that the studio has changed. Um, this is the jury rig version of the studio, just to make sure we get an episode out this week, because uh, in the words of the great Rakim Allah, it has been a long time and we shouldn't have left you. Uh, we had to take the podcast room down. Obviously, some things have been upgraded. We have chairs. Um so good things are happening. The room isn't finally dialed. That'll be happening pretty soon. So ideally, by the time you see the next episode, this will be like whiz bam, looking like a million bucks. Right now, it's a little bit in progress, but like that's okay. Um, progress, not perfection. Um, so uh, we're gonna do a solo pod uh, because I want to make sure again that we get something for you this week. And uh, I've got a bunch of stuff kind of in the hopper that I wanted to talk about uh, with with my brother Jeremy, who's not here today. Um, and in his absence, I'm just going to do this in a little bit of a different direction um, and talk about some stuff that I said online and expand because sometimes uh, the nature of this social media stuff is that uh, in a short form presentation, it's hard to communicate the sum totality of the idea, uh, which is the nice thing about getting on a podcast is you don't have that concern. Um, so uh, I said the other night, and I'll try to just do it accurately because God knows I don't want to, you know, screw up the thing that I said. Uh, that sounds like some complete word salad. Um, watching the World Series, and uh, and I got an email uh, from a guy who was talking about, um, you know, what he's trying to do in terms of ad- advance this idea of skills of skill in his local league. And the reason he's trying to advance is he's seeing too many guys uh, at the seven and eight U level uh, that are that are telling kids that like a walk is as good as a hit. Uh, I got some problems with that. I have some thoughts and some feelings and considerations. Uh, so what I said is like, you know, the old a walk is a good as a hit saying is absolutely not true at eight you and younger. Uh, at those ages, we want more, we want a lot more of Vladimir Guerrero seniors than we do Joe Sewell's. Uh, if you don't know, uh, Joe Sewell uh, is a guy who has had the least amount of strikeouts in MLB history relative to kind of his service time. Or at least that's what Baseball Almanac tells me. I don't, I'm not that old that I watch Joe Sewell play. I might feel like it sometimes, but I'm not. Um, and, you know, the response has been, uh, like, largely positive. Um, and I think the funny thing is, is that some people are kind of taking that and kind of run with it and like, well, yeah, maybe that's also true at 10 right? Uh, and if you've seen any version of... Uh, first year uh, coach pitch or first year kid pitch uh, and you see the game for what it is, which most of the time involves children sacrificing massive amounts of velocity just in order to try to throw a strike. Um, you know, those, those first years of kids that are pitching are really, really challenging Um Shout out to any coaches or parents that have already suffered through that landscape with their children. I remember it not so fondly. Um, but I, I think you can extrapolate some good things out of that, which is um, if the pitchers are largely going to struggle to throw strikes, then what does the competition environment look like in a way that's actually engaging and skill-driven as opposed to one that's optimized optimized to win in that environment? Um, and I think it presents some pretty stark opportunities on either side of the coin, depending on what type of persuasion of a coach you are. If you're a guy or a girl who just like needs to win, um, then certainly at that stage of eight, you and younger, a younger baseball, me even maybe even at the nine, U level, um, having kids basically go up the, to the plate with an approach to not swing is probably going to pay dividends. Um, and we've talked about this before, right? Uh, this is just kind of a game theory optimal approach to winning. Um, which isn't the same as development and which isn't the same as an opportunity to create an environment that optimizes for learning. Um, 
and like you guys have heard me do this spiel a thousand and one times um but i'll guess i'll do it again just for the sake of any new viewers that might happen to be joining us first of all thank you if you could do the like and subscribe thing that's great um winning a youth game at the AU level pretends nothing for your child's athletic future. Just like let that sit for a minute because it's true. Um, you can't future proof this stuff. So number one, all of these game results are largely meaningless. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't stakes. And I think the stakes are, are pretty simple to comprehend. We want the game to be engaging for kids, and there's a number of different ways we can drive engagement, but I think engaging, engaging gameplay uh, has to be kind of the North Star because that's the thing that we want kids to come back for. Um, so the game theory optimal approach where we have kids going up to the plate with the intention of not swinging because that helps us get a base runner, and the more base runners that we collect, the more likely we score runs. Um, the issue there is that you are just hemorrhaging learning opportunities. You are hemorrhaging a learning opportunity to have a kid start to understand even what their strike zone is or the stuff that they can hit. You are hemorrhaging a learning opportunity to have a kid start to develop an approach about what they want to swing at in certain counts versus what they don't want to swing at in other counts. And I will grant the eight and nine year level that's probably a little bit of an advanced concept um it's been a while since my kids were eight or nine years old um but it hasn't been that long and the point that i'm trying to make by suggesting that we need more vladimir guerrero seniors instead of joe sewell's there is i if i could if i could just like make a wish right um if i could turn my complaint which is truly just a desire, if I can turn my complaint into a desire, and if I could manifest that desire, the desire is, I want the game to be as engaging as possible. Okay, well, well, what does that look like? Well, I think it's relatively easy to make the argument that an engaging version of youth baseball at this really, really young level is one where kids produce something, right? The mindset that you cultivate by having something, being rewarded for what you produced, is very different than the one that you would cultivate if you are rewarded for not making a mistake, right? So if a swing and miss is a mistake or striking out is a mistake, um, we understand that's an inevitable part of our game. That is just something we cannot escape at almost any level um, past T-ball. If we demonize that mistake and basically act as if that mistake is unacceptable such that I'm so deeply in fear of that outcome that I would rather a kid not swing, even if there's anything that they could find a barrel. And I'm willing to punt on all those learning opportunities. Um, I think you're reinforcing uh, the wrong value system, system for that child in the way that they're going to come to learn the game. Because what you're effectively saying is that like, I don't want to run the risk of failure. And it's that failure is so... Um, is so impactful that we are going to strategize around it, right? We've, we've talked before about kind of this idea that like, you know, uh, um, you know, a ground ball needs to be, uh, a fly ball only needs to be caught. A ground ball needs to be caught, thrown, and then caught again. Uh, and how that, that coach, right, that, that coaching uh, mantra is one that acknowledges the inherent difficulty in youth baseball for kids to reliably execute these type of skills that truly are developing. But even that at least is predicated on a kid hitting the ball, right? It's predicated on contact. And we're, what we're kind of trying to do is understand the difference between different types of the value of, of one type of contact versus the other. Um, having a kid just go up with a non-competitive mindset because we're so desperately in fear of the potential negative of their failure uh, is lunacy. It's absolute lunacy, except that it's not if relative to you and your priorities as a coach. Um, so that's what I said. And uh, somebody replied and had uh, and had like a really um, a really good comment that like also kind of hurt my heart because, it shouldn't take it shouldn't take it 
it, it shouldn't be this bad. Um, let me see if I can find it. And if I was more prepared, instead of just like trying to deliver this um, to you uh, in in a very short amount of time, uh, well, we wouldn't be here, but we are. Uh, Pat, uh, Pat Tehan says, it's really hard to make the game reward hitting it hard at that age. I just wanted to teach my kid to love hitting it hard for its own sake. And I think the thing that Pat kind of gets at there is, is again, like, to, to me, the, the core issue is this lack of agreement of the intention. We, we don't have a universal agreement by youth baseball coaches on what the intention of youth baseball should be. Therefore, uh, it's a struggle for guys like Pat to acknowledge that they want their child, their, their, their desire, not a complaint, but their desire is for their kid to understand that hitting it hard is good, right? We're, we're trying to just like first principle the crap out of this thing and distill it all the way down. Hitting the ball hard is good. I want my kid to love that. If, as a, if we have parents in youth baseball that have that type of mindset that I would say is positive, and they see conflict between that desire for their children and the environmental signal that they're getting, uh, that doesn't say good things about our environment. Um, that That is a, a problematic configuration for us to be because, again, uh, kids got to hit. You got to be able to teach a kid how to hit. Um, but the moment that you start to introduce ideas like this, and again, you're doubling down on the kids' fear that they already have existing from a cognitive development standpoint to even properly put these type of failures into context, put these type of learning opportunities into context, that's an issue. So um, I thought we could talk briefly uh, in, in the time that we have today in this jury rig setup of our room. Okay, how do you teach a kid how to hit? Uh, I'm going to try to just like think through this live, um, in the, in the, in the best way I can, based on the experience that I've had, hopefully this would be beneficial to you. And I'm going to stop there there and realize that I didn't do, uh, my housekeeping, uh, that we need to do at the top of the show. And the first part of that starts with axbat.com code DL20, get yourself 20% off at axbat.com. Um, why? Should you do that? Uh, Axe bats are good bats. Uh, they have USA bats. They have U-Trip bats. They have BB core bats. They have training bats. They're going to have some pretty cool new training bats coming soon. I digress. Um, they're good. They're durable. Uh, you're not going to see an Axe bat that runs into that thing that other manufacturers do, where like every other year there's these batch of people that go on to JustBats.com and they complain about end caps popping off and they complain about brittle barrels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, my kids and the kids in our academy have swung a ton of axe bats over the years. I, uh, I would say that they are one of the more durable bats we've ever seen. So if you're into that idea, acknowledging that your kid might be swinging the same bat for a year or two, and you don't want to have to like buy twice instead of buying once axebat.com code DL20, 20% off. Um, Again, because it's specific to this idea of like teaching kids how to hit. And we're going to talk about, again, okay, smart guy, like how am I going to teach a seven or eight-year-old kid to develop like a, uh, a hitter-ish mindset? Well, part of that starts with the way that kids engage with the bat. And for me, uh, the axe handle, if you can put that in a kid's hands early, it is going to naturally help you solve a lot of the issues that kids have with bat path as a result of bad, uh, bad hand orientation, right? Um, I can't tell you how many times I've seen kids get into the box and like they start loose and then they get tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And now my wrist composite, my, my wrists are completely compromised, which then affects my ability to like deliver the barrel, uh, bat path gets screwed up. And now I have more swing and miss because of something that's happening way up the chain. Uh, part of the reason that our book that's coming out soon, pre-order details to follow includes a lot of information about just like fundamental principles of hitting things like the way that you orient your hands on the bat is because it matters. You, you want to pattern in something sustainable. And, and, and the biggest thing there is not to have negative downstream effects of bad hand orientation and wrist position at contact. The axe handle, because it naturally kind of puts you in this, you know, what you want to call door knockers, like whatever you want to call it, it's going to put the hands that way. 
we're just removing a really simple problem from the equation. Doesn't mean the kids are going to be perfect. Kids are going to be kids. They're not small adults, etc. But uh, I think the axe handle is just something that should be in the hands of basically every kid starting at T-ball. And now that axe has a T-ball bat, you can do that. So axebat.com code DL20. Um, Dominique Lightyear20. Get yourself 20% off. Um, so let's teach a kid how to hit. So we're talking about seven to eight year old kids. Let's assume that they played t-ball for like five and six, or maybe they just started at six years old. So the kid is comfortable with this idea of moving a bat at a stationary object. And now we need to start scaling upwards, right? We, we need to take that skill that's, that's predicated on not having to make a perceptual decision about when and where the ball is and when and where the ball is going to be making that decision with incomplete information based on like ball flight very, very early, uh, kids are going to struggle, right? Especially if you just put them seven or eight year old kids at like a straight up 46 foot distance. Uh, not only that, but if you, a well-intentioned parent are like five, six or taller and you are on the bump from 46 feet away, your release height is like way up here and the kid is like way down here. So what does that mean? Descent angle of the pitch is going to be very, very steep. If a kid's going to get on plane with that type of pitch, what does that swing look like? This is like the, the very, very steep attack angle. Uh, the thing demonized by your favorite commentator in mine, guys like, uh, guy likes, you know, uh, I don't even know what I want to call him. Um, Mr. Spray Tan, right? Um, they demonize that really steep, uh, steep attack angle swing. Well, if you are pitching to a seven or eight year old kid as a full grown adult while you're standing from 46 feet away, extreme descent angle, right? You're going to cultivate that type of thing. We don't want that. So uh, we understand that our athlete is going to struggle uh, making the decision of when and where to swing. We understand that mechanically, due to uh, age relative lack of strength capacity and development, they might not move particularly well. Um, we also understand that we just want to like probably cultivate intent and cultivate output uh, and put a lot of that mechanical focus to the side. We also understand that we're going to start in a training environment now that's going to ease their transition into hitting a live ball. And we're not going to just like dump them at the deep end of the pool and hope that they swim. Um, that's a pretty crappy safety strategy. I would also argue that's a pretty crappy strategy for introducing a young child into an engaging version of the game. So, okay, Devin, stop flapping your gums. What are we going to do? Here's what we're going to do. Um, Introductory, I probably want to have a mix of some T and something that is a very hittable moving pitch, which to me is always going to come back to like side soft toss. I think side soft toss is like the number one most neglected drill that you can do with most hitters that are in single digit ages. Here's why. Number one, you still have to make a perceptual decision and link that to movement because the ball is moving, but because the distance is so short, and you have the ability, because you can press the distance, probably to be a lot more repeatable with the delivery of where the ball is going to be, unless you're like, you know, super uh, uh, Ron Harper with your BP throwing. Ron Harper? That's that's Bryce's dad, right? Ron? I think so. Um, that guy's the GOAT. In a side soft environment, we can kind of address both of those things, right? Kids going to have to make a decision, have to link that with movement. But we're in an environment where that decision can be made relatively repeatedly without a lot of the same chaos that you would expect from just kind of, I don't know, 40, 40 grade adult BP throwing, right? Um, so, so number one, there's that. And to be really specific, and I hammer on this all the time, when I'm talking about side, side soft toss, I'm not talking about myself setting myself up in a position where the hitter is right there and I'm literally like feeding the ball directly into their belly button. Don't do that. Please, for the love of God. 
if you want to work with a kid and help them to develop, um, you know, this ability to kind of make quality contact deep in the zone, that's fine. I don't think you need to have that worry uh, about seven to eight year old children. Seven, seven to eight year, eight to year, seven to eight year old children party out front. Okay. I want that contact point to be in front of home plate and maybe two to three baseballs forward, right? That's where I want to be. So for me, just in terms of the physical construction of our side soft toss environment, the way that I used to do with my kids, uh, my kids are righties, right? So the right hand box. Um, and I am a little bit positive uh, into the field of play. Um, and I am serving a ball that is both it's into the zone, right? Not at the zone, but into the zone. Um, so if you've got your kid orienting at kind of the back of the box, which um, which is generally, again, what, what I always did with my kids, um, I would have, I would ask for kids to have kind of that front toe pointed at the top half of the, of the, of the box before the diamond starts to cut in here. That bottom edge, the last straight edge, that's where I wanted that front foot at. So if I'm side softing from there, I'm probably at the front part of the left-hand batter's box or maybe kind of the equivalent position on the foul line going up to first base. I want some amount of positive forward trajectory into, the, into kind of the hitting zone. That's, that's number one is get that right. Again, with the Skills and Scale training manual coming out soon, we're going to address this in detail, pre-order details to be coming soon. We'll just do a YouTube video or something like that for free. We'll, we'll get into it. But the configuration of that side, side soft house environment is super important. Um, it's a shorter distance. It should be a more easily accessible hitting environment for that young kid. Um, now, how do you, let's assume that they're also going to have some failure. Let's assume that they're seven, year old, seven to eight-year-old children that are going to struggle with the context of that failure. So we might, might need to vacillate back and forth. Okay, so... Um, programming wise, what I would do is I'm probably thinking about rounds of eight. Okay. And I'm thinking about rounds of eight where we can go back and forth between the T in between a side soft environment. Right. Um, I'm trying to do that one because I don't want the whole environment to revolve around failure. I, I want to specifically avoid that with a 78, seven to eight year old child, because I don't know how well that child is going to deal with that failure no matter what context I provide, right? So so let's first of all think about doing rounds of seven or eight where we're kind of going back and forth between T and side soft. Um, and I specifically want those rounds to be, you know, again, around eight, uh, maybe eight to 10, but I don't want them to be like infinite 40 pitch rounds without any type of break. Here's why. If I'm doing it at rounds of eight, I can say to a seven-year-old child, hey, let's see if we can have three of these eight pitches be hit past the pitcher's mat, right? For example, um, I want to give them an external goal for where I want the ball to be hit because to a degree, that can inform and impart some amount of learning and the ability for them to start to link mechanics and output and intention. That's a good thing. Um, for two, I want to do those rounds of eight because we can start to set PRs within this training environment. Okay. Uh, Hey, we go out and we're going to hit on a, you know, Saturday morning and we're going to do four rounds of eight on T and four rounds of eight on side soft. So we got 64 swings total. Um, and the T rounds are always going to be probably the higher performing rounds because you don't have to worry about that child making a perceptual decision about the ball. They can really let it eat. The side soft rounds, hey, I'm just keeping track of points. I'm just keeping score. And even if that first round, we got one ball hit past the pitcher's mound, well, the next round, what's our goal? Two. Okay, let's say we get two. What's the next round goal? Three. And even if over the course of those four rounds we're going to have on side soft, so four rounds of eight, 32 pitches, let's say, or 32 side soft feeds, right? Um, 
let's say that like if I look out on the field, I still only see like four ball four balls that are hit to the pitching mound or further. Okay, fine. Our score was four today. We're gonna come back in two days and we're gonna try to score five. Um, this again is like this gamification engagement loop where you want to give them like this breadcrumb path towards what success means, right? And eventually, if you keep running this loop, the kid is going to start to go, hey, mom, hey, dad, I don't need the tea anymore, right? I just want to work on side soft. Great, 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 great. I'm not saying you should continue to do arbitrary tea work for the sake of tea work, because again, we're talking about a young child that's going to very quickly move from a coach pitch environment to a kid pitch environment to like a more advanced kid pitch environment. The ball moves. We need to train that way. So... The sooner that we can get them kind of focusing on that, I think largely the better. Um, but if we allow them to make that decision, hey, maybe we're giving them a little bit of autonomy about what they actually want to do in the game, what they want to work on and why. Um, I mean, I, I remember we would have days at the field where, uh, you know, my kid might want to finish uh, on the tee at that age. And they wanted to finish on the tee because they know when that ball was on the tee, they could really like just get into it and try to hit it, take an absolute G hack, which I loved and I cackled and it was great and I loved it. Am I aware that like doing these swings, these G hacks off of a tee, that that's not where we need to go from a training paradigm? Yes, absolutely. Does that invalidate the fact that my kid liked it and it was fun? No, not, not at all. Um, broadly, I think if you can advance this type of stuff in your kid's mind, hey, you choose how you want to engage with the game. We're leaning into that autonomy thing. We're giving them a path to have a relationship with the game that's based on their interests and their desires, not us as the parents uh, shoving it down the proverbial throat. Um, so the first thing I would do with this 78-year-old kid, let's start to work out uh, and vacillate back and forth between some T-work and some side soft. Um, you want to level that up? Here's two ways you can do that. One, midi hitting plyos are the best way that you can start to kind of start to lean into this idea of having a kid start to quantify contact quality. Because even a seven year, seven to eight year old child, if they are doing side soft with a midi hitting plyo, well, number one, it's smaller than a regular baseball. That's a good thing because it's going to force them to be really aware of basically barrel accuracy, right? It is going to be harder to flush a mini hitting plyo than it is a regular five ounce baseball, strictly relative to the relationship between ball and bat, smaller object, harder to flush training environments that like really make barrel barrel accuracy, something that we're going to start working on in an appropriate level at say seven to eight, probably not the worst idea. So we talked about, switching back and forth between T and side soft, right? Uh, you could, of your four rounds of side soft, be half of them be regular baseballs, half of them with minis, right? Those regular baseballs would be much easier to flush. Uh, it's going to sound better when it comes off the barrel. Kids are going to like that. The minis are going to be harder to flush. There's a different game we can play, what we call flush or cake. If the mini comes off the barrel and it still looks like a circle, you hit that thing flush, Right. If the mini comes off the barrel and it pancakes out and it thins out, well, you cut it or sliced it. So we could start to do games like, okay, you know, we had uh, six balls that got hit further than the pitcher's mound, but of those six, how many of them came off with like that flush, that flush circular shape and did get pancaked out? Well, it's two. Our score was six. We had two flushed. Uh, you can play any variation of point games with that, right? Let's say each ball that was flushed is worth one point. I'm sorry, each ball that was hit past the pitcher's mound is one point, and the ones that hit flush are three, okay? So that's six points, or four points, uh, for the ones that got done past the uh, past pitcher's mound, uh, six points for the two that got flushed, that's ten points on the day, Right? We're leaning into this idea of gamification. We're leaning into this idea of context. We're leaning into giving a kid a breadcrumb-like trail towards skill development. That's engagement. Straight up. That's what it is. So um, one way you can do that was with a mini hitting plyos and start to work on a little bit of contact quality. Uh, if you want to give a new implement to the environment, mash factor balls. 
Okay, so the minis are small and they're heavier than a baseball, so it's going to be harder to hit those flush and far, which is going to compel our young developing athlete to focus on barrel accuracy in an appropriate fashion, and they're going to have to move, develop some bat speed to hit that ball far, right? Because heavier than a baseball, it's going to be more, uh, be less resistant to movement, right? Smash factor ball. Um, if you were going to start doing uh, front flips, or a full-on live arm with a kid that was like, say, eight or nine, from an appropriate distance, ideally from a knee or sitting on a bucket so we're not creating this incredibly drastic attack angle, uh, Smash Factor Ball is a great thing to introduce to that environment because, number one, uh, and I'm not saying that any parent would ever do this intentionally, other than that guy down in uh, Huntington Beach from a couple weeks ago in that episode. Um, Smash Factor Ball, if you do happen to, like, come hard and inside on a kid, not intentionally, it's not going to hurt as much as getting hit with a regular five ounce baseball. It's a smashy. They're super soft, super squishy, won't hurt. Number two, because they're lighter, because they're squishy, it's going to go farther into either a five ounce baseball or a mini hitting plyo. So again, uh, let's think we're doing like three rounds. Let's let's go three rounds uh, of side soft. One uh, round of eight with regular baseballs. One around of eight with the mini hitting plyos, one around of eight of smash factor balls. In those different rounds, we are incentivizing different things. We are engaging with the athlete in a different way, and we're giving them just like different opportunities to have fun. Like, let's not forget that. Fun is important and good, and we should do that. Um, so that's one way that you can start to level up that environment as you start to kind of uh, transition from tee and decide soft and maybe just additional just only working inside soft and to be clear i don't think there's anything wrong if you just want to stay inside soft to be honest um i spent years doing nothing but side soft with my kids because i was super yipped up about my bp ability i separated the shoulder twice throwing is not particularly great um that but like look man bp is not about you Right? Ed Williams is not going to walk by my field and see me deliver delivering like 80 grade BP and be like, that's that's it, champ. Right? Casey Stengel is not going to stop by. That's that's not happening. Uh, it's about the athlete and delivering them something they can develop with. I think Sidesoft is a perfectly reasonable alternative if you struggle with front toss or flips or anything like that. Um, but let's talk about flips. So let's say we've got a kid that is starting to get comfortable with this idea of being able to time up uh, a pitch and relate that to their swing uh, from a side soft environment. Great. What's the next place to go? Flips, man. Front flips, perfect place to go. Uh, why would I suggest that front flips are the way to go? Okay, number one, uh, there's a couple different things we can do. With front flips, again, I can constrict the environment, assuming I have an L screen to stand beside behind. Please do not for the love of God, stand out there in front of like a developing eight to nine year old child without an L screen, giving them flips. Uh, your dentist might appreciate that choice. Uh, your dental insurance might not. Don't do that. So find an L screen, uh, whether that's just like a box net or, you know, anything like find something to keep yourself safe, first of all. Um, but if I'm doing front flips, uh, I can compress that distance pretty significantly if necessary. Um, again, I think we're making the problem a little bit easier to solve by reducing the distance, which is a valid thing for a young seven to eight year old child that's learning how to swing. Water break, sorry. Um, you know, guys get freaked out all the time about like, well, I got, I got to get them ready. You know, I, I, I got to get them ready. So I got to, I got to pitch to them from, you know, 60 feet, six inches. Bro, these kids are in single digits. They're going to get there when they're 14. You have an eternity of time before that's like an actual real issue you need to deal with. Um, front flips, though, I can stand with an underhand front flip and have that look like the descent angle and release angle of something that they're actually going to see in competition. Uh, I could certainly do the same thing just sitting on a bucket and kind of like dart throwing overhand as well. Again, just pay attention to kind of the, this relationship between uh, distance and descent angle and try to make sure that we're, we're largely like mapping this thing to what kids are going to need. Um, 
But flips, again, uh, I think is, is a great way for you to be consistent with delivering hittable pitches for that kid to start to scale the difficulty up a little bit, right? We're, we're not kind of side soft, super palatable. I'm just going to drop it in your wheelhouse. I'm, boy, I don't know. Uh, I mean, when I started doing flips with my kids on field, I would say I was probably 15 to 20 feet away. And then over time, I started to compress that distance down. Like the closer that my kids got to like 12, the closer that I started to, to, to kind of compress that distance. Because now I can compress distance, be a little bit more firm with my flip and give them something that's going to be appropriately challenging uh, and also consistently in the zone in a way that like for me personally, I'm just unlikely to be from 46 or 60 feet away. Not about me. It's about them. Um, or you could do flips from again, that same distance, maybe 15 to 20 feet away and give something that's going to have like a nice, you know, a nice, I don't know, nine to 12 degree descent angle. Right. Uh, something like that is a decent place you could be. And again, it's just all about kind of finding the sweet spot of distance and arm action relative to your player's height, relative to their strike zone, that's going to put you in that type of ideal configuration. Um, and then, you know, eventually as you get closer to eight uh, and get closer to nine, yeah, maybe I am uh, sliding out to the full distance, right? Maybe I'm going all the way out to 46 feet. Um the point being is that I want to again have this like breadcrumb trail. The point being I want to have this breadcrumb trail between our T work and our side soft and our flips and our live arm. That ideally it's like as a progressive, but relative to the athlete escalation of the difficulty, right? Um, this is important because. Of everything we want to cultivate again about this hitterish mindset of kids getting into the box and looking to hit and being creative about the solutions they deploy to find barrel on ball. I want that type of creative creativity. I want Vladdy Senior, right? I want you to be crazy enough to hit it off the bounce. And hey, along the way, if you want to mix in things like literal, like bouncing a tennis ball at a kid or having them them bounce a tennis ball and then get it or help them self-toss and catch a barrel. All of that stuff is good. All of it. My kids have done all of it. We've done all that type of stuff in the academy. Um, it's good. Let them do that. Let them have some autonomy to kind of like, hey, you want to finish finish practice where we went down to this field and I'm going to give you, you know, six tennis balls and you either just need to like self-toss to yourself or bounce them off the dirt and then try to time up your swing and hit a nuke. Perfect. Great. Tons of fun. Uh, again, if you're training indoors, you probably do that smash factor balls. Um, but again, the idea is, is that like this progression is relative to the athlete. They might take a dip. They might struggle all of a sudden to find good barrels and flips. Okay, cool. Well, maybe we're going to vacillate back and forth between not T and side soft and then neglect the flips entirely, but maybe we're just going to go side soft into flips. Right, we're gonna do three, four rounds of flips. Then we'll go pick, we'll talk, come back, and now we're gonna do our flips. Right? Um, I think I talked about this a couple episodes ago, but you know, my kids were were uh, in high school now, and a couple, uh, maybe a month ago now at this point, they had to do like an, a learning assessment. And the way that that learning assessment worked is the the system was flexible in that if they continue to answer correctly, the questions would scale up in difficulty. And then if they didn't answer questions correctly, it would kind of scale back down. And the difficulty isn't flat. It's not static. It kind of ebbs and flows relative to the kid's capacity. There's no reason if you are working with one single athlete that you made, this is a person you made, that you can't go to the field every single day and and should feel comfortable scaling difficulty up or scaling difficulty down relative to your kid, what they have the skill for that day, what they have the emotional bandwidth for that day. 
And again, flashback to a couple episodes ago, this, the, you know, the guy that was just like giving it to his kid in Huntington Beach. Um, that's the time for you to deploy that type of skill because the thing that that just makes my blood boil about this type of stuff is when a kid walks off the field feeling incapable at these ages, right? Um, my son has been uh, struggling on the hitting side for probably like a month. Um, he's going to be 15 in, in January. And, uh, and it was interesting because he was kind of convinced that there was something wrong mechanically with his swing. And now that he's almost 50 and, you know, I, I feel it's appropriate to start to have these type of conversations. So we started to talk about it. Well, um, he was like, I, I don't feel like I'm getting my lower half. I'm not using my lower half. I just feel like my swing is all upper arm, all are all, all arms. I'm just kind of swinging, swinging with my top half. Um, and I said, okay, tell me why do you think that is right? So I'm, I'm trying to engage him in this discussion about like why he's feeling what it is. Uh, and he's the one that's in the box. You know, I, I, I've got my own thoughts and feelings when I watch him swing, but like he's in the box and I want to listen to what he's saying. Um, talk to some of our trainers. Uh, everybody was kind of in agreement that like his, his feeling was actually correct, that he had kind of regressed in getting kind of this full body kinetic chain sequence that utilized the whole thing. And it was like, okay, well, what's the environment that's going to cultivate the thing that we want. Uh, shout out to my brother, Eric Kozak. Um, Shaq's recommendation was really two things. One was basically the Kershaw drill where we're in the box, raise the lead leg up, drop it down, kind of ride it out like Kershaw does on the bump. Uh, and then from that position where we've got the legs kind of going the way we want it to, then we start to swing. Um, I think part of the reason that he started leaning that way as he dinged the ankle up a little while ago. And I think he just got a little gun shy about putting weight on the ankle. Uh, the ankle's healthy. Um, so I said, okay, so, so what's the thing that I, what's the training environment that you need to be in to cultivate your feeling that, that that is a safe thing that you can do, which is actually put weight on that lead leg, brace and rotate on it. Happy Gilmore's. So we, um, basically give that as a drill prescription uh, and through that period of time, there were for sure some bad training days. And as a 14 year old child, he would get frustrated and I would go like, Hey man, you just got to trust the system. You got to keep doing the work. And as long as you continue kind of building up reps and again, working in the drills that are going to systematically solve the problem, we should be good. We should feel confident. We're going to get to where we want to go. Um, ER to 87 miles an hour last night, uh, top eight EV on the night was like 84 or something. Um, it all clicked, right? And it all clicked all of a sudden. My 14 year old child struggled dealing with the context of not performing the way that he wanted. Um, and I'm still deploying some of the strategies that I developed when he was like eight or nine years old and when my daughter was eight and nine years old to try to put context around that. Your seven to eight-year-old child, uh, the way that they cope with that struggle, they just might go like, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like participating in this thing because I associate it with failure, especially if we parents and coaches double down on it. And even more so, Man, wrapping up like failure and doing an activity with your parent has the capacity to be like a real not great mix. So the point that I'm trying to make about kind of meeting your athlete where they are and being comfortable and capable scaling difficulty up and down is effectively as a way to kind of like, let's stem that tide. How do we make sure that kids can walk off the field feeling challenged but also feeling accomplished right i think that's a sorry trying to get over this cold give me two seconds guys i think that's a reasonable place we want to get seven seven or eight year old children too in terms of the way that they 
understand their relationship with this game and this process of getting better in it. You can feel challenged. You should feel challenged. You should also, you can also feel a little bit accomplished and hold both of those things simultaneously. That is the Gene Piaget, uh, the formal operational stage, right? It's like an understand the abstract thought concept that I was challenged today, but I feel resolved and I feel accomplished in what I did, the successes that I did have, but I know that I want to get better, right? When they play a game of Rainbow, Rainbow Six Siege or Fortnite and they don't get the victory royale, but they take like second or third place, or maybe they go even on KD, kill death ratio. Uh, that's the nugget that the game is going, right? That the game is telling you, hey, you did, you did okay, but there's another thing you can continue to work on. I want more of that signal for kids that are 78 years old. I want them to get that signal. But first of all, coming back to the original kind of core concept here, you're, the kid's never going to get that feeling if you just tell them to not swing. If you have such a hard-on for getting a base runner that you tell a 78-year-old child to not swing, well, guess what, man? Uh, you're serving yourself. You're not serving the athlete. Knock that off. Please, for the love of God. Uh, second, it's a, it's it's appropriate for them to be challenged, right? Not everybody's going to be a winner. That's okay. None of this stuff... It's okay for them to be challenged and accomplished, right? It's okay to be like, I did the best that I could today, but I know I want to get better. And the more that you lean into these concepts of gamification, the more that you lean into these concepts of like scaling difficulty up and down, the more that you lean into like these breadcrumbs of what are the amount of points that we score today, the better that child should feel about their path for getting better. And that, my friend, is the thing that you want them addicted to. I want kids that are addicted to this process skill development. I want kids that are addicted to improvement. I want that culture for kids that I work with because it's going to pay dividends much longer than a seven-year-old or a seven-U or an eight-U season. That's life perspective. Our game is uniquely qualified to teach it, but we as the adults and coaches have to conduct it in a manner that they get that type of signal. It's on us. We got to be in agreement. Um, that's how I teach a kid to hit at seven or eight years old. That's exactly what I would do. It's exactly what I did. Um, has it guaranteed anything about my kid getting a chance to play high school baseball? No. No, not at all. Didn't guarantee a single thing about that. There's no, there is no future outcome that is locked in because of the choices that I made at seven to eight years old. But that is a fallacy. It's a fallacy that that's even a thing that you could do. Because by the time they get to high school, by the time they get closer to the end of high school, you got to realize that like it's going to be on them at that point. It's, it's not on you. Do I want to support my children in every potential endeavor that they have to help them get better? Yes. Am I going to do the work for them? No. Am I going to be the one that's responsible for the work? No. Can I be the one that's responsible for helping them be accountable? Sure. But, but that's a different thing. In the current configuration of things, where, again, from the question at the beginning of this thing, right, we have coaches that are telling seven to eight-year-old children to not swing. Are the wins at that point that valuable? And, like, who are they valuable to and for how long? I would offer that they're not valuable for long. And if they're valuable to anyone, either that child or you as a parent, that value diminishes very quickly over time. The more that your kid kind of stays in the game. And if that's the thing that you intend, uh, kid better be able to hit, right? Unless you're growing like seven, eight, seven or eight-year-old POs. And for the love of God, please don't do that. Uh, 
Kids got to be able to swing a bat. Kids need to be able to understand how to make contact. Kid needs, kids need to have a hitterish mindset. They had to have an approach. I'm not saying that you can like future-proof and fix all that stuff at seven or eight years old. I'm saying that you can put them on a path. And that should be your responsibility as a coach. It was my responsibility when I was still coaching kids that age. Uh, I did it as well as I could. I definitely wasn't the best at it. And if I speak with conviction about this stuff now, it's only because I've learned more and uh, don't have a time machine. I I sure wish I did, but I don't. So uh, Hove did that, so you don't have to go through that. Anybody gets that reference. Um, I got nothing else. Uh, we're going to keep this one a little bit short. I have a meeting that I was supposed to get into about two minutes ago, um, so I really do need to keep this short. Uh Skills of Scale, complete youth training manual, pre-order information coming soon. We're going to do a whole episode breakdown on it. Look forward to that. Uh, if you want to start to learn about some of these approaches that we have for youth baseball environment or for, for youth baseball coaching development right now, check out the youth baseball development course. It's a great place to get started. It's specifically targeted at like a recreational baseball 90 to 120 day season. Um, axbat.com code dl20 get yourself 20 percent off of axbats thank you guys as per usual for listening uh sorry about kind of the the herky jerky you know jury rig state of the room uh the whole pod the, we'll do a whole reveal of like the new space uh it looks way better it's going to be super cool um but this one is just you and me so thankfully uh thankfully hopefully you guys got something out of it Thank you guys for listening. The likes, subscribes, uh, the reviews, all that stuff is hugely important. If you listen to it, if you want to tell a friend to tell a friend, man, it really means a lot to us. Uh, and that's all I got. I'll catch you guys next time. Thanks.